Okay, so last week we started to um, we started to take a look at revival, uh, and our, I want our desire to be one to understand from a biblical historical perspective uh, what does what desire, what revival is. And what my hope is, is that as we see it and understand it biblically and historically, that we don't just understand it, but that we truly desire it. That we truly to desire a great movement of the Spirit of God. Um... A, a, a great outpouring of the Spirit of God upon, ultimately, we, His 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 people, His church, His body. Um, but we ended last week with a quote. Did I bring it? A quote from Paul Washer. Um, yeah, a quote from Paul Washer, and I want to read that again because it's where it's going to lead us this evening. Um, and he goes like he says this. He says, "I want you to know that there is little need for the devil and evil men to oppose a man praying for revival." Unless that man is also laboring for reformation. We have been given truth. We cannot simply do what is right in our own eyes and then expect the Holy Spirit to come down and bless us. Um, So meaning this, the devil isn't worried about someone who's simply and only praying for revival. That doesn't... He's saying that that doesn't bother the devil. That someone just sitting and doing nothing other than praying for revival. But find a man who, while praying for revival, because that is important, find a man who's doing that but is also asking the Lord to show him his faults, his sin. Find a man who's praying for revival, who's praying that the Lord would reveal his own sin, that he would reveal to him the ways that he needs to change, ways that he should repent. Find that person who's searching the scriptures, seeking truth that can transform him. him. Now that's a man whom the devil will call his enemy. That's somebody who the devil hates and opposes. Uh, and so I, I, I think it would seem very foolish for us to not, to not do that very thing. To be um, intentional in searching our own hearts or asking the Lord to reveal to us how we may be falling short how we might be in um, sin, even hidden sin, unaware. Uh, because sin that we're unaware of, which is a thing, it can be a thing, is still sin. 
Uh, And I want it would be good for us to think through this over a period of time as individuals, but also collectively. So now, so that puts us to Psalm 139, uh, which might make a little bit more sense to y'all, having said all that. Psalm 139, and we'll we'll read the first few verses because they help us understand the verses that we really want to look at. So it starts. As a psalm of David, it starts in David acknowledging the um, – I'm sorry, I've lost my words – the omnipresence of God and the omnipotence of God. Uh, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. David's acknowledging that God knows this. He also is acknowledging that you discern my thoughts from afar. Right? Only only God can discern people's thoughts. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So he David's acknowledging that God knows his thoughts. And he's, a, and he's aware of all of David's ways. Um, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So basically we're going to say this. God knows more about you than you know about you. And in the wrong situation, that could be a real scary thing. Or on the flip side, when we're lining up with what God desires, that's going to be a, a good thing. Because then we get to the end of Psalm 139, and this is the sort of the part I wanted us to see. Um, verse 23, you know, the one that we quote and know very, very well, but keeping in mind what God knows, what God sees, how he knows us better than ourselves. Verse 23, David's, Plea to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You've heard people having conversations and they're like, just, just tell me the truth. It's okay. I can handle it. I can take it. Just deal, deal straight with me. And then someone tells them the truth and then how do they handle it? Usually not very well. And so David is asking for it. He is literally asking for it. He tells God, search me, know what's going on in in here, try me, test me, know my thoughts, see if there's any grievous way in me, and then ultimately, then lead me away from that. Take me in the opposite direction. He says, lead me in the way everlasting. So... David was firmly aware that even as who we know is a man after God's own heart, that there were thoughts and ways within him that could lead him to the way of destruction. They were there. Because if they weren't, if that wasn't the case, then this psalm and these two verses don't make any sense. And we know from the from 
reading about David's life that he went he took those paths sometimes. Alright, so here as as we try to understand and desire revival, I think it, it is very, very important that we seek repentance. Repentance. So as we as we study, as we discuss and pray for God to to to, to send revival, we ought to individually and as a church always by the Spirit of God doing self-evaluation. Um, and as we're doing that, we're looking at the scriptures to, to do the to do the testing and the and the and the, and the yeah to test and to discern whether or not we are um, walking or thinking any grievous ways and in so doing that the all the, the the effect the out the the fruit of all of that would be is repentance a turning away from it? Um, and I, I, Reformation is just a, a form of repentance. Um, there's an old saying that, there's an old saying, I don't know who it comes from, but it's, I think it's Latin. It's semper reformando or reformanda, which Semper, if you're if you know like the Marine Corps slogan, semper fidelis. Semper is Latin for always, right? And reformanda is is Latin for reforming. And so we as the church should always be seeking reformation. Um, now, why would that be a good? Why would that be a good necessary thing that we're always seeking and desiring to be reformed back to what we should be? Ultimately, what the Scripture says we ought to be. Because we'll never be. We're not. We're not perfect, and we'll never be perfect. But we shouldn't be satisfied with anything less. We should never be satisfied with anything less than holiness. Uh, that's why, and we'll read it later. That's why Peter, in just quoting the Old Testament, says, "Be holy, as God is holy." That we'll never get there, but we're not going to satis- be satisfied or strive for anything less. Because that's our pursuit. That's our calling. To obtain holiness, Christ-likeness. And we'll, so if that's our pursuit, then we're always going to find something in front of us. As long as we're breathing on this earth, we're always going to find something to repent of. If that's what we're truly after. Always. Um We'll never be perfect, but we should never be satisfied for anything less. Uh, so, here, here's kind of the plan over the next few weeks. Maybe I don't know. I don't know how long is is for us to take a take a survey 
of modern church, okay? Because we fit into that category. We're a part of the modern church. Um, And we'll look at a few areas where it seems that reformation and repentance is needed. Now, as we do this, the point isn't let's talk about how bad everything is outside of these doors. We might talk about some things that are very bad and need to be repented and reformed in the church, but they might not necessarily reflect what's going on here. Now, if we look hard enough and think hard enough and and uh, search hard enough, we might be able to make that connection. Um, but it might not necessarily, everything we look at and think about might not necessarily reflect us collectively or individually. But you know what this, how the saying goes, if the shoe fits, right? Which, you know, I don't, I don't say that lightly. I, the shoe fits us a lot. Um, so the first, the first thing, the first thing I want us to think about, and that's our view of scripture. Okay, our view of scripture. This one's tricky, and I'll, I'll show you why in a minute. But before we before we go and do that, let's get ready and get to Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter three. And let me also let you know that roughly I'm going to be following as we as we do this this um, this little book by Paul Washer where I got that quote from. It's called Ten Indictments Against the Modern Church. Um, it's if if you want to order one, you can find it online really cheap, but you can also get the the Kindle version for free. Right, and then you get the Kindle version for free. Uh, and I think it's always been free, just because that's typically what he does with his materials. He tries to make it as accessible as possible. Huh? Well, like I said, I'm not going by chapter by chapter. I don't think, but I'm just kind of hanging out by it. But you got a, the free Kindle version, right? Okay. <laughs> Um, but it's also just if you Google that, you could probably find a PDF of it as well online. And so I kind of loosely be following following that. But the first thing again is, so um, our view of Scripture, do we need to reform our view of Scripture, repent of um, a poor view of Scripture? Uh, so let's read 2 Timothy 3, and we read it today at some point. Maybe it's Sunday school. Yeah, it was in Sunday school. And you'll see a lot of overlap about what we talked about this morning in Sunday school when we were talking about why we worship corporately like we do. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's see, where do we want to start? Let's start at 14. 16 is really the emphasis here. But let's start at 14. 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that verse is pretty important too. Um, 15 or 16, excuse me. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so that section has been foundational for our forming, for the church in church history, forming our doctrine of Scripture. Super, super important section. Um, so there are four ways to describe Scripture, and I think we've probably all heard of them. Here, and here's the four ways we typically describe Scripture. Inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. So inspired, we would, we would say just plainly, it's directly from God. Uh, as our passage said, it's God-breathed. Um, inerrant, meaning no errors. Now, just an asterisk, that is in reference to what the apostles wrote, what was written in Hebrew, what was written in Greek, not what was copied down time after time, um, but what God gave those who wrote these words, there was no error in them. Um, number three, infallible, just saying it's never wrong. It's never wrong. Number four, and this is one, the last one that I we, we sort of kind of need to think a little bit more about, is it is sufficient. Basically, it's enough, right? But it's enough when it comes to all things God, salvation, and how we ought to live. So... The big question is, okay, we think about the church today. Do all Christians believe those four things about Scripture? Well, the easy answer is no. They don't. There are churches who say they do not hold to these four things. Um, that's, we would call it progressive Christianity. Almost every major denomination in America, almost, has fallen from this view of Scripture. Um, the, the Southern Baptist Convention was this close in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They were this close to moving away from the Scriptures being inspired Inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. Uh, and the Lord redirected it in that time frame. And um, 
and kept it from going and following that path. Uh, but this is a very, a very, 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 we don't see it here where we live. We don't see people denying inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficiency. Almost everybody you come into contact with around here will say thumbs up to those four things. Uh, and they might not even go to church, and they might give you a thumbs up to these four things. But the problem that we must consider when we think about these four things, especially the last one, sufficiency, isn't, isn't do we give it the thumbs up in theory? The question is, is do we deny it in practice? Do we say, yes, the Bible is from God and it's sufficient for all things, God, salvation, and, and life? but yet we deny that in how we live. All right, that, that's, that's sort of the aspect that we have to, we have to think about. Now, I'm going to pick some low-hanging fruit here. Um, it's really easy. Uh, you could say, you could hear someone say, you might have heard someone say, I believe that the Bible is sufficient but I'm late for my appointment with a psychic. Now, like I said, that's low-hanging fruit. That's You might not have ever had that conversation, but, but I guarantee you people have said it. They've gone to church on Sunday and seen a psychic on Thursday. Um, or uh, I put down my Bible and read my horoscope. Right, we're. It is. It is saying that the Bible is not enough to tell me how to live. I need additional things to help me or tell me how to live. Um, here's another easy one. I I do I do see the Bible as these things, and it's important to me. But science is is very important. To me as well. Um, I try to live as a good person. You know, I believe in Jesus, but science helps me understand the world around me and how I am engaged in it. Uh, that's denying the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, you might you might could push on me a little bit here, and we could say that science actually can have good fruit okay science can have good fruit but nowadays science is instructing people about moral issues right trust the science and the sad the the, the crazy thing about it is is that a lot of those moral issues that are being guided by science comes from not like people that you would think scientists you'd never see, but ones who wear white lab coats and call themselves doctor, physician. You know, we we've decided as a doctor who has studied science that what's in that woman's belly is not a baby. 
because the science says so, right? So the science is guiding moral decisions, which should only be coming from Scripture. Scripture is our final judge on all things moral. Or the big one now, and it's, again, this is like low-hanging fruit, but it just, you would think it's so obvious. Our, the doctors are now telling us that the science shows that helping someone go from being a male to a female is better for them. And I don't, I'm not trying to pour on all these social issues, but I'm just trying to point out the fact that our Christians who call themselves Christians are being persuaded that certain issues are morally good because doctors tell them so. Not what God has said. And so that's denying the sufficiency of the word of God to guide us in how we ought to live. Um, let's let's read a couple a couple verses. Let's start in Psalm 19 and then we'll do Psalm 119. We're pretty close to the end here. I I didn't have a a lot tonight. Uh, But but here, so let me read these couple verses, and then maybe I'll step on your toes a little bit. (laughs) Because I've I've kind of been out here in in what seems like fairyland, talking about psychics and science. Psalm 19, and then 119. And kiddos, this would be good for y'all to hear too. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. So remember, we're thinking about uh, really the sufficiency of the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making simple the wise, or making the wise making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. There's that external aspect of faith we were talking about this morning. So we just see the the we see what the word of God is and does in such a in such a passage. So I would 
I would venture this guess. If you're looking to something outside of Scripture for direction, you're, you're probably going the wrong way. And I don't mean in what you're looking, what you're going to get to help you. I mean your compass is pointed in the wrong direction. Does that make sense? Right. The the way God's pointed. If you're not if if you're not pointed in the direction that God has pointed, then obviously you're going to be like, oh, but that's going to be real helpful to accomplish the thing that I want. Or the thing that's going to help me feel good or better, usually about the sin I'm committing. And so, if we find ourselves practically neglecting the sufficiency of Scripture, we might actually find ourselves pursuing the wrong things. We find ourselves on a path not directing us towards the will of God. Um, Psalm 119. And so this this verses 9, 10, and 11 are going to help us kind of think about that a little bit more. Psalm 119, verse 9, 10, and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? Okay, so if we stop there, 119, verse 9. If we, if we stop just there, how can a young man keep his way pure? Okay, that's the path we want to be on. A path of purity. A path away from sin. If you find yourself desiring and going down that path, the only answer, the only direction, the only instruction you're going to find is the rest of the verse. By guarding it according to your word. But if the verse says, how can I... Young man, keep himself satisfied. He's not going to find the answer in Scripture. He's got to look somewhere else. He has to. If all of the the only desire is self-satisfaction, self-comfort, if it starts with self, it's probably going to be wrong. And then you're going to have to look somewhere other than Scripture to help you know where to go. But if a young man or a young woman is to keep his or her way pure, you got to go to the Word of God. Verse 10. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. If you're seeking God, the commandments are where you want to be. I have stored up your word in my heart. Well, why? That I might not sin against you. Kiddos, that's why we read the scriptures. Is because that's why we memorize the scriptures. 
is because we've put God's word in our heart that's going to guard against sin. It's like, it's deer season, right? It's like not forgetting your bullets when you go get in the truck to go hunting. You're storing those in your, in your pouch, in your pocket, right? You, you can't forget them because you're going to need them. Well, when, you're go, when, you're a, when you're attempting to live a life pure, seeking God and not living in sin, you gotta, you got to store up the ammunition, and the ammunition is the Word of God. Okay, so here are some sneaky practical ways we can deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Some sneaky, practical ways we might be denying the sufficiency of Scripture. Number one, we approach Scripture with a buffet-style mentality. Buffet-style mentality. I like that part. I don't really care about that part. I have some of that. I can do without that. And what are we saying when we have a buffet style of scripture? I only want what I want. Cherry picking. Cherry picking. And if you do that, you, you're you not going to be on the path. You're not on God's path. You're on your path. I want what I want, so I'm going to read the passage or agree with the passage or, or when I want, how I want. So buffet style. Number two, this one was already discussed. Uh, and that would be the Bible and. So I, the, I need the Bible and something else. I could ruffle some feathers here. I need the Bible and, um, what's it called? Spiritual yoga. <laughs> like we, we could have that conversation. That that could open up some, some problems and some can of worms there. Um I'm not saying exercise is a bad thing. I'm saying when you go to do something in a spiritual sense that is outside of Scripture, you might be conjuring up the wrong spirits. Let's just say that. So, again, we could even, okay, let's, we could even take it a step further. If you feel like you need something along with the Bible, to make your life go in the right direction, into the will of God, then you're you're probably not relying sufficient sufficiently on Scripture. Um, and ultimately, what you're going to get run into is idolatry. You're idolizing that thing that you think you need to help you live the life you need to live. Um, so that's the Bible, and so the world just has has something to offer to you that the Bible doesn't give. That's basically the point of the Bible and. The world has something to offer you that the Bible doesn't. Now the last one is neglect. And ultimately what neglect says, I don't need it. Now this is this is the most scariest the the scariest one I think because most time this one is subconscious. This one says it doesn't say anything. You're just living your life not 
going to the Word of God. And you're not sub, you're not consciously saying, I don't need Scripture. But the way your life is lived is you're saying, I don't need Scripture. That's why if I look back and think about the last three months of my life, I've barely opened my Bible. And so that, that one's really sneaky and I think very scary because especially in our area where everyone gives the thumbs up to inspired, infallible, and errant, insufficient, but we might find a little dust on the covers. That's neglect. And ultimately, when you say, I don't need it to the word of God, you're saying, I don't need you, God. And that is not only saying that scripture is insufficient, but God is insufficient. Um, and so if we find ourselves in any of these areas, and I would just I would just I would just suggest that you think about these three things, and you know they're I, I kind of gave them piffy names for you to remember them, buffet style, the Bible and, and the third being neglect. To think through these things. Um, in a David Psalm 139-like manner. And I think if we did that in the right heart, in the right spirit, we might be able to find something, all of us, uh, to repent from or to repent of. So, just to close, First Peter 1. Such a good passage. We've alluded to it already. This would be a good passage to meditate on when it comes to thinking about these things. First Peter chapter one, beginning in verse thirteen. First Peter chapter one, beginning in verse thirteen. Okay, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being preparing your minds for action. Remember, we use that word today. Action was a result of living by faith, by the way. Action is a result of living by faith. Preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So don't get off on the wrong path, right? Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Set yourself on that right path. Pursuit of holiness, pursuit of Christ-likeness, not pursuit of the passions of the world, not the, of your former self. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself without fear throughout the time of your exile. 
knowing, don't forget, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. He was made known in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How do we keep our way pure? Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of God remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. And that made me think of one more passage. Uh, it's either Colossians or Second Timothy. I'm trying to remember. Yes, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David... As preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. So Paul, Paul's like, I'm, I'm like helpless as a person because I'm bound in chains. I'm a prisoner. But he says, and I think you could just end it here. But the word of God is not bound, meaning it is sufficient. It works. It's infallible. It's what you need. The word of God is not bound. Christ is risen from the dead. Even if you're in chains, the word of God is not bound. Let's pray. I'll give you all some time. Uh, take a few take a few minutes to pray about these things.